listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today on the show, we have Miles Kimball. Miles holds the Eaton Chair in Economics at the University of Colorado Boulder and is the Emeritus Professor of Economics and Survey Research at the University of Michigan. He is a pioneer in monetary policy and is an advocate for deep negative interest rates to successfully fight economic crises. You can find his ideas on his blog, Confessions of a Supply-Side Liberal. He holds a BA in economics from Harvard, master's in linguistics from BYU, and also a doctorate in economics from Harvard. Enjoy my conversation with Miles Kimball. Miles, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So the first thing I like to do with guests is jump in and discuss a little bit about what you were doing back in 2008 during the global financial crisis. You know, up until that point, we had SNL crisis. We had collapse and bailout of long-term capital management for, for any of the, you know, re- listeners who may have read When Genius Failed, um, that nothing like 2008. So why don't you take us back? Okay. That time. Well, I didn't start blogging until 2012. Uh, so the, the closest thing to being relevant to the financial crisis that I was doing Back in 2008 was I had been visiting uh, Japan almost every year for a couple weeks. And and right around the time of the financial crisis, I I spent my two weeks each year at the uh, at the Bank of Japan. And and it was, you know, at that time, they were still defending the monetary policy that they had had that had led to. At first it was the lost decade, but then it was about two, more like two lost decades. And so I, that gave me a perspective of seeing just how dramatic the change was when, uh, when Kuroda became head of the Bank of Japan. And I was, I was pleased to see how, how vigorous he was in, in trying to do stimulative monetary policy. And so, so that's the, that's the only unusual perspective. I guess I read the newspaper and uh, unlike some people, I, I don't fault the Fed for what it did because, you know, I was, uh, I was reading the newspaper. I, I couldn't predict what was happening. I, I think that some of the key facts the Fed probably could have, uh, asked for, but, uh, it wasn't obvious that they should ask for like one of the key facts was that the uh that, that the key banks were had just so much of the of the dicey assets on their own books at that point you know if they'd really just right. been passing them off to other people then 
they would have, then we might not have had a financial crisis. Somebody, somebody would have taken the hit, but it wouldn't have been the banks on, on Wall Street. That's exactly right. Now, before the crisis, the balance sheet grew to around 800 billion, call it. And it, it had grown steadily kind of on a you know, few percentage point basis every year. And then, you know, obviously they, they took it up all the way to four and a half trillion, a lot of treasuries, but also MBS in there. So as far as I think, as you mentioned, most people agree that it was the right thing to do and to kind of get that injection and that shot of liquidity. Discuss a little bit about we've gone many years and the balance sheet was supposed to roll off. It was going to be kind of like watching paint dry. Mm-hmm. And now, and now it seems like maybe we're, we're heading back to, to, to beefing it up a, a bit more, even though maybe it's on the short end for, for 30 day bills or something like that. Yeah. Well, they're really, really two different things to say. First of all, in terms of the attempts to stimulate the uh, things by buying lots of, uh, buying lots of longer term bonds, so on, which was called QE. I, the QE is, is fairly weak medicine. And so you can have many, many trillions worth of, of QE and stimulate the economy only modestly. So people, some people claim it's zero, but, but it's clearly relatively weak medicine. So that, that's the first thing to say. Second thing to say is there, there are other reasons to keep a big balance sheet, uh, apart from any stimulus you'd get from QE. And, and one is that there, there are a variety of reasons that different institutions want to have safe assets on their books. And if, if some arm of the U.S. government doesn't provide them, and in this case it's the Fed, then they, then people will come along trying to invent things that claim to be safe assets that really aren't. And so, so I think there's some wisdom in, uh, uh, so, some wisdom in having the balance sheet of the Fed be large just so that there are plenty of, uh, you know, very, very safe, uh, short term assets in existence. The, the other thing is uh, there is there is emerging a, a perfectly reasonable operational method uh, for the Fed where they they basically have a big enough. The idea is to have a big enough balance sheet that there's there's more reserves than anybody could ever want. Uh, for any purpose beyond just earning the interest on reserves that the Fed pays. And then the interest on reserves that the Fed pays becomes the, the main determinant of, of what market interest rates are for safe short-term assets. And then they'll, you know, determine things like treasury bill rates and so on. Um, but, but they, you know, and so recently the Fed found, oh, that they didn't have enough, uh, hadn't, didn't have enough reserves in the system for that to be true. The, the, there was a reason why people wanted more reserves than, uh, than, than just, you know, for, for purposes other than just earning interest on reserves. And so that it's very interesting to see this new way of determining interest rates 
emerge. I, I have some graphs that I do for my students that are different from what the textbook says. But if, if you simply have enough reserves, then the interest on reserves determines the the market interest rates. And that's a perfectly good way to do uh, monetary policy. It's sometimes called a floor system. Okay. And previously, the Fed used just traditional open market operations to target the, the short end of the curve. And then they changed that to paying interest on excess reserves around, was it like 2015? Or was it always well, a combination no, no, they of had, They got the permission to do interest on reserves. Didn't they get that permission a little earlier than that? Maybe okay. as late as, I suppose it could have been as late as 2015, but Maybe I know that 12 or Fed, 13. I, I, I know that the Fed is very, uh, is, is very, uh, glad to have that power of paying interest on reserves. And so basically, the, the Fed's way of doing things changed when it got that power to pay interest on reserves. And so it's, you know, it's taken a, a few years for that to evolve to what it is now. But fundamentally, the thing that changed was the Fed got a new power, a new authority to pay interest on reserves, and that opened up new possibilities. Now, open market operations are still part of the story because how how does the Fed get reserves up high enough that uh, th- there's more reserves than anybody could possibly want except for earning interest on reserves? Well, to get the reserves up that high, the Fed has to electronically create um, money and uh, use it to buy treasury bills. Right, and they're more they're by pushing down the yields uh, of them, kind of going in and buying from these primary dealers. Exactly. And, so that's and, open and, market operations. So the open right. market operations are still part of the story, but as long as there are enough reserves, the open market operations have done their job, and then it's just the interest rate on reserves that's determining market market rate. That makes sense. And yeah, how? Would you tell someone to think about this as far as the debate saying, okay, this is just an asset swap where, you know, the Fed is is swapping reserves for treasuries. And on the other side of the coin, there's some debate about, okay, if if these assets aren't rolling off, then this is more like debt monetization because the Fed remits all the interest back to the treasury. And now they, like, there's no reversal of that trade happening. How would you respond to that? Actually, you know, I I don't think that the Fed is doing debt monetization. You know, you, they, mm-hmm. they just contrast the way the Fed talks about things with the way the say the um, MMT folks, the modern the so-called moni- modern monetary theorists talk about it. So so they right. the MMT folks talk as if the 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 amount of potential seniorage is huge that somehow the the, the the ability to create money means uh we don't have to worry about taxing people anymore <laughs> and that would right. be, that would be kind of magical if it were true and and uh and it's not you know it's 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 a little bit like the left wing counterpart to the you know not quite true version of supply side economics that was proposed many years ago. I mean, you have, you have elements of standard, uh, 
standard macroeconomic theory and, and economic theory more generally, but, but the sizes of the effects are just different than what, um, uh, what most economists would think they are. So the ability to just print money instead of, instead of have taxes, uh, you know, it's not like there's none of that in the world. You know, you can, you know, printing money is, is itself imposing something that we metaphorically call an inflation tax. But leaving that aside, you know, to what extent can you raise money through the inflation tax as opposed to other taxes? Well, you know, they're talking as if it, it's a huge, huge, huge <laughs> of funds. So, so you could contrast that with what the Fed is saying, where the Fed is clearly, to the extent it talks about fiscal policy at all, it, uh, uh, the, the folks at the Fed are saying, no, you still need to tax people to get funds or, or the national debt will get much bigger. Right. So, uh, well, there was this hypothesis from probably more investors than maybe economists, but as far as this the, the massive amount of QE causing inflation and showing up as a CPI type inflation. And obviously we've seen you know, arguably asset price inflation as people go up on the curve to you know, take more risk and, and get more yield. But we haven't seen, at least the way the Fed measures it, inflation show up. We've seen, you know, housing, we've, you know, student loans, healthcare, certain pockets. But is this something that economists kind of knew all along and, and a lot of investors got this wrong? Or is this something where it's still yet to be, you know, determined whether all this money sloshing around is going to cause some type of CPI inflation? Well, I, I, I teach about this in my class. There, there are some ways that investors got things wrong. I mean, so, so you have, uh, you know, it's not the money supply that determines how much inflation there is. It's the velocity adjusted money supply that mm-hmm. determines how much inflation you're likely to get. And uh, the velocity adjusted money supply, there's a there's a famous identity, uh, the, the equation of exchange or the quantity equation that says the velocity adjusted money supply is equal to nominal GDP. And and so, you know, if nominal GDP had been jumping way up, then you might have expected more inflation. But uh, but in fact, if you look at the graph of nominal GDP or same thing, velocity adjusted money, that, uh, it's, it's, it just jumped down at the time of the financial crisis. There's a, there's a, there's a notch down and then it, it, it goes, it never comes back up to the trend line that nominal GDP had before the crisis. And so if you look at the graph of nominal GDP, which equals the velocity adjusted money supply, you wouldn't be surprised that uh, inflation went down rather than up. And so folks who thought it was the money supply rather than the velocity adjusted money supply would have made the wrong bet in the financial markets. Right. And do you see the, the Fed being able to to shrink the balance sheet and and go back to kind of where we previously were before the crisis at this point? I mean, it's been so many years since. 
Well, I, I, to me, I, I think that's mostly a sideshow. So, mm-hmm. so you know, the, the size of the the balance sheet is is um, you know a reasonably weak effect on on the economy, and um, I think I think the Fed wants to have a floor system, as we talked about before. So it'll want to mm-hmm. keep uh, enough, keep the quantity of reserves high enough that that the interest rates are determined by the interest rate on reserves because there's more more reserves than anyone could possibly want for any other purpose and mm-hmm. and so I think that means the balance sheet won't shrink shrink uh, all that much and uh and and people will just get used to that so uh I I think there're bigger changes coming you know uh the uh the big change in the future is the likelihood that uh, that the fed will use negative interest rates as many other central banks have done the 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 european central bank the bank of japan the the swiss national bank the the uh central bank of sweden which is the riksbank and uh and and the central bank of denmark you know so that's quite a few central banks who've begun um creating uh, a a, a ba- basis of experience with uh, negative interest rates. Right, and you've done, you know, quite a bit of work on the subject of negative rates and I'd love to get into that. We have a little bit of precedent I was reading in Switzerland in the 70s, they took mm-hmm. rates negative. Obviously in 2008 T-bills flashed negative pretty briefly. We've had some things that people can look at. And from reading your work, you've done a lot of research in the area of of how it may not punish savers as much as, as some people kind of say it does. And then also speaking to the point of, of that injection, maybe negative rates for a shorter period could actually be a lot more beneficial than yeah. having, let's say, another policy tool, QE or something, or, or even yeah. zero rates for many, many years. Well, yeah, let me let me speak to that. So, you know, recessions or slow recoveries aren't good for anybody, savers or borrowers. So, mm-hmm. so the number one thing we need is to get get out of recessions quickly. If you don't get out of recessions quickly or if you have a slow recovery after that, then you can have many, 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 many years of zero rates. And so if we'd had minus 5% in, in 2009, uh, standard models suggest we would have uh, had a robust recovery by, you know, mid 2010, you know, that would have been a very powerful stimulus to the economy. And even despite the increases in the risk premia, uh, you know, people were a little scared then, uh, it would have been a very powerful stimulus. And I, I think we could have had a strong recovery by mid 2010. And then if you think by 2011, you got back to recovery and 2% interest rates, Savers would have been much better off than by all the years of zero rates that we had. So, so people must understand, uh, negative rate policy and it, relative to what, how I think it should be conducted. Now, now, you know, it's, it's fairer given the way the central banks that have done negative rates have been kind of dipping their toe in the water and going to, 
you know, at most like minus three quarters of a percent. And then that's not enough stimulus. So so you end up doing it for a long time. But but ideally, the way you conduct negative interest rate policy is to go to dramatically deep negative rates for short periods of time. And you do have to, you know, adjust some other things in order to do that. You've got to adjust paper currency policy. You you have to do some sensible things to protect bank profits. But as long as you, you know, protect bank profits and, and uh, deal with with uh, paper currency issues appropriately, you can there's no you can go to as deep neg- negative rates as need be to to stimulate things. Right. And you've done, you know, and some of your work describes kind of the mechanics of how that would work as far as, you know, maybe putting a tax on cash deposits or. Well, or well, can you go into that? Yeah, a let me, bit, let me, how that let might me work? explain that. So there are really two very different ways and uh, to deal with the, the paper currency problem. And and, uh, you know, don't don't let's not forget to go back to the bank profits problem in a bit. But. Um, that's that turns out to be easy to take care of. So the paper currency problem, uh, there, there's two very different ways. Uh, one is actually current policy in at, at the Swiss National Bank and at the Bank of Japan. And that is simply that, uh, you know, we were talking about interest on reserves. So um, both the, the Swiss National Bank and the Bank of Japan have quite complicated formulas for paying interest on reserves now. And one part of their formula is if if a commercial bank withdraws uh, more than a certain amount of paper currency, then effectively they're going to they're going to get a penalty. Uh, They're going to get a subtraction from the amount of interest that's paid them on reserves. So basically there's a penalty for a commercial bank withdrawing too much paper currency. And this by itself is a very powerful policy. So, uh, you know, it, when, when people talk about, oh, you can just, you can just take out paper currency and store it and get a zero interest rate. Yeah, you can only do that with the cooperation of the central bank because it's the central bank that is, uh, for commercial banks and the rest of the economy, the source of paper currency. So it's mm-hmm. only if the central bank is, uh, you know, freely giving out paper currency with, with no penalty whatsoever that, uh, that people could, you know, get a zero interest rate effectively by paper currency. And so when you do things like what the Swiss National Bank or the Bank of Japan is doing, in principle, they could go to much lower negative rates than than they're doing and still not have to worry about people taking out trillions and trillions of dollars worth of paper currency and storing it. Because, uh, you know, how do you get that? The bank, the bank that took out the uh, paper currency would be on the hook for for paying that penalty. Now, now you know, the details of the policy matter. And so. I think maybe currently there, at least in Japan, there are some loopholes that make it not quite as strict as what I'm saying. So you'd have to, you know, take take away some of those loopholes. But if the if if the bank that at the cash window 
was saying, you know, debit my reserve account and ha- give me a billion dollars worth of cash. If that bank, uh, was on the hook for paying this, this penalty for withdrawing a lot of cash every, every year, then, uh, banks wouldn't want to do that. And the, the main downside of this kind of policy is then, uh, you know, the banks, the commercial banks would have to then turn around and tell their customers, uh, we actually don't want to give you cash. So it might show up, for example, in, uh, higher ATM fees and, and, uh, they'd also have fees if you tried to take cash out inside the bank, which by the way, many banks, uh, I think already do that in the United States. I mean, currently it's mainly to steer you to the ATM. So they charge you if you go inside because it costs them less in labor if you go to the ATM. But that just shows that banks can impose fees inside the bank. And if they had both those and fees at the ATM, that the, the, the banks that were paying extra to the Fed for paper currency could then, you know, try to try to at least break even on uh, on on the paper currency they were passing on. Right. And going to the bank profits, I mean, there's some concerns out there that you have, you know, banks and entities like insurance companies that are trying to match assets to liabilities and kind of messing up their entire business model with with these type of policies. So how would that piece work? Well, they're really two very different pieces of the story here. So so one thing is, you know, as long as as long as a central bank is doing what it takes to get the economy to, you know, a reasonable unemployment rate, like right now the U.S. has a fairly low unemployment rate. Uh, what, what do you know that what the latest was? I don't. I can. But it's look something it up. like three, three and a half. But yeah, right. you know, so you know, as long as a central bank gets the economy to a reasonable unemployment rate, um, beyond that, what interest rates are is uh, what interest rates are when the economy is kind of in neutral uh, is beyond the control of the central bank. There are forces beyond the power of central banks that are keeping interest rate, that are making the natural or neutral level of the interest rate low. And, and it's been quite remarkable how the Fed's estimates uh, of what the neutral rate is have come down over time. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really not very much above inflation at all. Those those are forces that are not the doing of central banks. And those those forces that are bringing interest rates down are what are giving pension funds the trouble. That's that's not monetary policy. That's things like, um, you know, many people are at the uh, age when they're prime savers. Uh, another part of the story is uh, you have folks in China wanting to wanting to save, but they don't really. They don't really trust the financial entities in China, so they want to save outside of China. You also have the Chinese government want, in order to juice its exports, at least in previous years, maybe not as much lately, but they, they, they would buy lots of U.S. Treasury bills, uh, 
Um, so, I mean, those are only some of the many forces. You, you also have, um, you know, we, we, uh, the, the, you know, if you think of, think of history, you know, we're, we're kind of missing the counterpart of, uh, building the railroads or something that would be extremely capital intensive would require huge, huge investments. So you have many, many technological advances, but once you figure them out, like it, uh, if you think of the kind of thing that happens in Silicon Valley, once you actually figure, figure out how to do the technical advance, it doesn't, it doesn't always require a huge investment. So I think, I think there are ways we could unleash further investment, um, mainly by deregulating the, the construction of housing more. And this is now quite, quite a big, quite a big ferment uh, in California, for example. So, so there was a, there was a referendum that was on the idea that you should be able to build housing near mass transit. And uh, that mm-hmm. referendum didn't succeed, but, but there's now, you know, there, there's this old expression of not in my backyard. There's now uh, people who say they're yes in my backyard. People are Yimbies. So you have Nimbies versus Yimbies. And if the Yimbies succeeded, uh, then we might be able to open up a lot more investment in, and housing in desirable cities, uh, for example. So, so, you know, that, you know, so you've got this balance between desire to save and desire to invest. And, uh, you know, I, I've probably only told you, mentioned half of the forces that are going on, but right. the point is that's not the doing of central banks. Whatever's happening to pension funds and any difficulty they have, is not the fault of central banks. It's the fault of other forces that are that are operating in the economy that are far beyond the power of central banks to determine. Right. And and let's say BOJ or Swiss National Bank takes rates down to you know negative four or five percent. What what then would be the hypothesis of, of what would happen? Like more more investment you know what walk us through a little bit about well, how that might play out so so that you know you've got to realize that that would be over stimulus of the swiss economy currently so that would be a bad idea right now just like it would be a bad idea right now for the us to go to minus 5% on the other hand i think it would be a very good idea for the eurozone for the um to the European Central Bank to go to minus two percent, for example. And so, um, so if you did that, so certainly they should, um, what, what they, here's how that should play out. First of all, um, they can certainly be very cautious and I, I think it would be unlikely for them to not be cautious like this. They can basically go down in, you know, 10 basis points, that is one-tenth of one percentage point increments like they just did from minus four-tenths of a percent to minus a half percent. So they can, they can just keep going down in, you know, 10 basis point increments and see what happens. Now, given that the Swiss National Bank and the, I believe the, um, Riksbank in Sweden went down to minus three quarters of a percent, I think it's pretty likely that nothing 
dramatic would happen up till then. I mean, it, it is possible that, you know, that, that Germans are especially, would especially lean towards storing a lot of paper currency. So it's not clear that things are the same in the Eurozone as they would be in Switzerland. But nevertheless, uh, you can go down by small increments and see when, when you start getting, uh, higher withdrawals of paper currency. You know, by the time you get higher withdrawals of paper currency, you need to have in, you know, this, um, you need to have in place this, um, penalty on the banks for withdrawing too much paper currency as the Swiss National Bank and the Bank of Japan have. And, and that's enough to take care of you probably all the way down to minus 2%. Now, if you, if, if you have a really bad recession, like, like we did back in 2008, 2009, and you need to go to minus 5%, then, um, it might be that just this penalty on, um, banks taking extra cash out from the central bank would be enough. But if that's not, if that's not enough, then you can, uh, you can do, you can do something else, which is to take paper currency off par. So this, there's a nice historical analogy here that's not perfect, but is, is, is a nice one. It, back in the olden days of the gold standard, when there was a serious recession, uh, countries often temporarily went off the gold standard. And so similarly, it's possible to temporarily go off the paper standard. So, so mm-hmm. the idea is that, you know, that you, uh, when you're off the paper standard, your, your unit of account, the way you're measuring all the quantities of, of, of money is, is really a dollar in the bank or a euro in the bank. And, uh, and then a, a paper euro or a paper dollar is, is really thought of as just an, a, a secondary way of making payments. It's perfectly good way of making payments, perfectly good way of, of storing, uh, you know, storing funds, but it's not privileged in any way. So, so, you know, if, in a time when, um, uh, money in the bank is, is shrinking at the rate of 5% per year. You need to make sure that the value of paper currency is also shrinking at 5% per year. That's not disadvantaging paper currency. That's just making it so there's nowhere to hide from the negative interest rates. And because, you know, what you want, actually not nowhere to hide. What, what you want is people to hide from the negative interest rates by investing. Or, you know, spending. Right. That's where I was going next is this, this type of policy is really to encourage people to go out and spend. Yeah. And kickstart the economy. Exactly. And would it also be a way where, where businesses could get cheaper loans to Absolutely. invest? Absolutely. So, so let me, let me finish explaining how you get the, get the paper currency to have a negative rate of return. You, you basically have you know, a dollar would start out by being worth a dollar, a paper dollar would start out being worth a dollar in the bank, but gradually over the course of a year, at, at the end of the year, it could be worth, uh, 95 cents in the bank. And so, so there's nothing inherent about paper currency that says that you earn a zero return from paper currency. That depends on the paper currency policy that the central bank has. And in particular, 
this is really straightforward to implement because at the, you know, at the cash window of the central bank, basically central banks have a, a, a teller window for the commercial banks. And at that teller window, uh, a, a paper, a paper dollar or a paper euro is, is worth whatever the central bank says it's worth. Now, you know, there, there, there are interesting legal issues about what central banks can and can't do. And many of those are not resolved. So, so at the, at the moment, I'm speaking in technical terms. Technically, unless it's prohibited from doing so by mm-hmm. law, which would be a contested issue, um, as a, a, a paper dollar is worth whatever the Fed says it's worth. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, in terms of, in terms of reserves. So, so yeah, so, um, yeah, so now, we should come back to how this stimulates the economy, but go ahead. Yeah, so now it, there were some different kind of outcomes of maybe how people thought this would play out, at least with rates coming down under QE, and you know, people thought maybe businesses would invest in property, plant, and equipment, and instead they did a lot of stock buybacks with cheap cost of capital. Um, and we, we've seen unemployment come down, but we haven't seen that wage growth. So would this also have to have a component of some fiscal side or some enforcement of the law there? <laughs> or or no, how would that piece no. play out? As long as you can use, as long as the, the central bank, the, like the Fed, has the ability to take interest rates as low as needed, all you need is regular monetary policy. Cutting interest rates is conventional monetary policy, and it has the same kinds of effects if you go to negative rates as otherwise. Now, with with two possible except, you know, two maybe three possible exceptions. I mentioned the paper currency problem, and we talked about how to deal with that. And then there's bank profits problem that we can come back to. And and there might be some confusion. You know, people. People might be a little bit confused by negative interest rates at first. I mean, people start out saying, what is a negative interest rate? And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I explain that, uh, you know, a positive interest rate like we're used to is when the borrower pays the lender for the use of money, use of funds. And a negative interest rate is when the lender pays the borrower in order to take care of funds. I mean, we're used to the idea of, you paying for a storage unit for your extra stuff. When interest rates are negative, then you have to pay someone to store your, store your funds. So there's nothing impossible about that. It's just a different economic situation. Right. Now, flipping over to, you mentioned MMT and there's been some yeah. talk about fiscal stimulus and you, you even mentioned building things like railroads and infrastructure. How do you feel about some of these proposals, you know, being outlined, whether it's kind of UBI or whether it's infrastructure spending from some of the presidential candidates and others as well? Well, the main thing I would say is, is all of that discussion about fiscal policy, I would like to see totally separated from the idea of economic stabilization with, with a few exceptions. I mean, I think you can have, I, I have a proposal for instead of tax rebates, you could, um, give people a, a line of credit, you know, sort of the government mailing out a credit card to people in the, and that can jumpstart the economy quickly. But, but by and large, 
I would like to see fiscal policy decided on long run principles. What should we be doing in the long run? Let's get the economy to let's get economic stimulus. Let's tame the business cycle using monetary policy by unshackling the Fed so it can fully use negative interest rates. And uh, then that takes care of the business cycle. And then we can cleanly look at the issues of fiscal policy in 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 a longer run sense. Um, you know, there 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 are a lot of there are a lot of long run issues that uh, that we need to deal with. There's uh, you know, there's a there's potentially a financial cycle that's separate from the business cycle. And, and for that, we want to have high capital requirements on banks to avoid financial crises. Uh, you know, that's a big issue where different politicians differ dramatically and how tough they'd be on banks and in, in having the capital requirements that can ensure financial stability. The, uh, there's, uh, there's also the just I'd like to see the federal government distinguish between uh, long run capital expenditures and things that are more like consumption expenditures. I'd like to see them have a have a capital account. I'd like to see, you know, there are lots of problems in terms of infrastructure spending. I'd like to see uh, the government enact a new sets of regulations that make infrastructure spending cheaper than it is. As it is now, uh, we pay way more for each bit of our infrastructure than than other advanced countries do. So, so there, there's there's just a huge number of long run things to talk about. And and I the the title of my blog is uh, Confessions of a Supply Side Liberal. Although there are versions of a supply side economics that are not true. The 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 part the version that is true that I've given. My, put in the name of my blog is we should be focusing on things that increase the long run productive capacity of our economy. And so in, in the context of neg- what, how do negative interest rates contribute? What negative interest rates do or having that in the Fed's toolkit, it shouldn't be using it right now, but the Fed should be able to use negative interest rate when the economy is in a deep recession. What that does is it is it just takes care of the business cycle. And then we have the airtime to talk about the long run issues in the economy. The more time we we're spending talking about the business cycle, the less time we have to talk about the long run economic policies that will really make our country, you know, even richer than it is and, and, you know, and deal with inequality and so on. So every, every minute we're talking about the business cycle is, is a, likely to crowd out uh, a good fraction of a minute of talking about long run economic policy. So let's just take care of that with negative interest rates. And, and, you know, you're talking about how the negative interest rates stimulate the economy. You know, the funny thing is there, there's still an ongoing debate among macroeconomists about how it would stimulate the economy. If you go from, a plus 2% interest rate down to zero. But whatever the mechanism is by which it stimulates the economy to cut rates from two to zero, and I, I don't see a lot of people doubting 
that cutting interest rates from plus two to zero will stimulate the economy. Whatever reason that stimulates the economy, it's the same if you go from zero to minus two percent, as long Mm -hmm. as you take care of the paper currency problem and the bank profits problem. Right. And now under that type of scenario, as we talked about, I could see, you know, people going out and spend, 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 and then inflation picking up or the the real economy kind of picking up. And then maybe rates on the longer end of the curve actually start to rise. Mm -hmm. And then the whole curve can become kind of normalized. Exactly. A strong negative interest rate policy ought to get us back to a a normal yield curve. And, And so there's some thought that having a flat yield curve, that is having long-term rates, not much above short-term rates, might be bad for financial stability and might be bad for bank profits. So one one of the contributions to solving the bank profits problem is having a normal yield curve by by especially dropping the short-term rates down pretty low. But But there's another big thing that central banks do. So central banks that have done negative interest rates and the central banks that have have so far only done mild negative interest rates. Uh, they've been converging on a, pol- on a policy of supporting bank profits in a variety of ways. There are two main mechanisms. One is very common is to have that complicated interest rate on reserves formula. And I mentioned that in terms of penalizing cash withdrawals. But the other thing you do is you say the first chunk of your reserves will pay you a higher interest rate than later on. So the last bit of reserves that you have will get a lower interest rate, but the first chunk of reserves will get you a higher interest rate. And that higher interest rate on the first chunk of reserves helps support bank profits. Now, what I'd like to see and what I think would be that ought to be the next big step in negative interest rate policy is I'd like to see that support to bank profits that comes from that interest on reserves formula to be explicitly tied to the amount of, of, of funds that a bank has in terms of small checking and savings accounts. So what I'd like to see is to see the, the Fed or other central bank really say, look, we don't want regular people to ever see a negative rate in their checking or savings account. And in mm-hmm. order that regular people never, ever, ever see a negative rate in their checking or savings account up to, you know, I don't know, $5,000 or something, um, you, you just have a system where banks voluntarily report and they get permission to voluntarily report uh, from their um, from their customers to the central bank, hey, we've got this amount of money in these small accounts, and it would be attached to the equivalent, the social security number equivalent, so that people couldn't just have a little account in a lot of different banks. And then you uh, then up to that amount, for example, the the Fed would say, you know, we're going to pay your bank a zero interest rate. That they can, that means that they can give you a zero interest rate as well. Now, beyond that amount, if somebody had a huge amount of money or it was a commercial customer, then, uh, then, then the banks don't get this deal from the Fed. They would, um, 
you know, they'd be facing a negative rate. And then presumably the commercial customer or or the customer that had a huge amount of money would then uh, be subject to the to the negative rates. But but, you know, people who have a lot of money, they're more sophisticated uh, in the countries that have negative interest rates. Uh, we actually have experience with this. The, the, the large customers did end up facing negative rates in their, in their, in their equivalent of their checking accounts. And, and they complained, of course, but they got used to it relatively fast. But what I want is to make sure that regular people never ever have to face negative rates in their checking and savings accounts. And there's a very straightforward policy by which a central bank can make sure that is likely to happen. Now, notice also because that's in terms of bank, that also takes care of bank profits because the only important, you know, honestly, lower interest rates help bank profits and bank balance sheets in a lot of ways. The, the only way in which negative interest rates are hard on bank profits is when banks um, you know, are reluctant to, you know, they don't want to pass on the negative interest rates to their customers and they're not getting any help from the central bank. But if the central bank is basically helping them out so that they don't need to have, uh, 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 negative interest rates for their, for their, um, small time checking and savings accounts, then the bank is is whole in terms of its profits. So that basically that really takes care of the bank profits problem. And, and you know, th- there are other ways to take care of the bank profits problem. But I, I like this way um, because it also, mean, you know, it also just means that the people who would be the have the most difficulty understanding negative rates don't have to see negative rates in their checkings and savings accounts. Yeah, I think that that piece makes a lot of sense because I think that's one of the the main concerns among others. But uh, yeah. people opening their bank statements and, and realize like something's you know, really wrong there. But being able to separate the two makes sense. Now, kind of switching gears a little bit, closing on this idea of you know you touched on MMT. We mm-hmm. talked about the balance sheet as far as just the the U.S. national debt itself. So we're you know we're very high on a debt to GDP ratio. Um, and you have kind of this argument of deficits don't matter, you know, mm-hmm. back and forth for how many years now. But how do you kind of reconcile that? Uh, there's a lot of people that have said that, okay, this is kind of a beneficial policy to just kind of peg rates, you know, down so the interest on the national debt doesn't explode. Um, and obviously the other side of the coin is, okay, if we can get some organic growth, like you mentioned, maybe with the policies you've outlined, then that will, will actually take care of things. So how do you come out on that? Well, you know, I, I, uh, there are many things to say. One, I instinctively want to worry about the national debt. Uh, however, I, I did uh, do a little bit of statistical analysis with, Yichuan Wang some years back when, when, I don't know if you, uh, the, the listeners remember the, uh, hullabaloo about when Reinhardt and Rogoff's, uh, claimed that high debt levels were bad for economic growth really fell apart. And, and I think 
our very simple statistical analysis showed that that fell apart even worse than some of the other commentators were saying. So, so there's not a ton of, I mean, we don't know at what point, uh, it's, it's a too high a national debt, but I would say I, I would love to see us if we're, if we're going to increase our national debt, I'd much rather see us increase our national debt for more worthy purposes than what we seem to be doing. You know, it'd be better if we were doing it to build more infrastructure and we did that in a, in a way that was at the kind of prices that <laughs> Europeans get. Uh, it'd be better if we were spend, you know, putting that money into scientific research. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite afraid that we're going to increase our national debt, um, on things that are really about the short term rather than the long term. Now, there's another thing you could do in terms of the long run stuff, which is actually pretty interesting, which is, uh, you could, um, you know, people need to be, we need to be more creative about the politics of, of, of dealing, you know, slowing down climate change. So one of the, one of the interesting things you could do would be to, um, enact a carbon tax, which would do wonders for both, you know, getting us good research on other ways of, of, of producing energy, but also, uh, reduce carbon dioxide emissions, get us to shift to, from coal to natural gas quicker in the short run and in the longer run, get us to more solar power. And, um, uh, one way to make this more politically, uh, attractive so that people will be okay with it is to recognize, look, we, we're, uh, this is going to benefit future generations. So it's, it's okay if future generations pick up some of the tab for, um, dealing with climate change. So what if you do this? So you enact a carbon tax and then you say, look, all the revenues from this carbon tax are going to go to, to, to pay off these carbon bonds and, and these carbon tax, these carbon, carbon tax based bonds are handed out to, uh, all the, all the citizens. And, you know, you get, try to get other countries to do the same thing. But now the current generation has an asset that they can do a lot of things with. They can, they could sell it and send their kid to college and whatever. But then whoever held these carbon tax backed bonds would then be a constituency, would then be, um, you know, wanting to keep the carbon taxes in place so that the, the value of their carbon tax backed bonds didn't plummet. But as it is now, there's no carrot to trying to slow down climate change for the current generation. But if you have these carbon tax backed bonds, then, uh, then people now get something for the fact that they're, they're slowing down climate change. So, so I just think that, you know, they, the, the politics in this whole area have been fairly uncreative up till now. And, and, uh, you know, it's been all, you know, root canal kind of attitude towards, uh, towards the slowing down climate change. And that hasn't been working all that well politically. 
Yeah, I think, you know, going down the road here, especially as we see more debates, you know, from the, from these potential candidates and, and even the incumbent to see kind of what plans they come up with. But there's a lot to tackle, obviously, between healthcare, infrastructure, mm-hmm. student loans. Like you said, you know, spending smart, I think, is is something to really think about when you think in context of of the of the outstanding debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But well, Miles, this was such a great talk, and I think it really shed a light on how maybe during the next downturn, you know, this negative interest rate kind of policy, the way you describe it, could actually be a lot more beneficial (laughs) compared to some other policy tools. And why don't you tell listeners how they can find you and and read more of your work? Yeah. So first of all, on Twitter, I got my own name at Miles Kimball. Then uh, if you, um, if, if you Google my name, Miles Kimball, you will get the Miles Kimball mail order company first, but I'll be right under that and you'll get to my, get to my blog. And, uh, you know, if you, if you're interested in what I have to say about diet and health, actually, I think Googling Kimball diet will even get you into <laughs> some of those things. So, uh, so it's not, Great. not, not hard to, not hard to Google me if you remember my name, Miles Kimball. Great. Well, thanks so much, Miles. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. This is great. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.